electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. On this episode, you'll hear from the CEO of Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, Stan Kroenke. He's best known for owning several sports franchises, including the Los Angeles Rams of the NFL, the Denver Nuggets of the NBA, the champion right now, and the Colorado Avalanche of the NHL. Each have won a championship in their respective leagues, by the way, in the past two years. Kroenke shared his winning strategy with my colleague Scott Wapner at the Game Plan Sports Business Summit hosted by CNBC and Boardroom on July 25th, 2023 in Santa Monica, California. Here's their conversation. Stan, thank you. Thank you. Uh, For what I think everybody in this room knows is a rare opportunity to catch up with you (laughs) and have this kind of conversation that we're going to have today. So we're grateful that you're here. Pleasure. And what the video said is the run that you've been on is so remarkable, it's unprecedented. Four championships in 16 months. Four in 16 months. Rams win Super Bowl 56. The Avs won the 2022 Stanley Cup. The Mammoth, the 2022 National Lacrosse League title. And of course, the Nuggets just won the NBA championship about a month ago. What I want to know first is how in the world have you created this empire of winning? Because that's what it is. How do we do this? I mean, it takes a lot of great people. Um, that absolutely would be the first comment you'd have to make. Unbelievable people, players, coaches, front office. Um, so how have we been able to do it? I mean, it's not like it's an overnight success unless you want to say we have won championships before the 16 months. It's very hard to do. Some, you, know, you set things up. You feel like you, you try to get in a conversation and sometimes it takes failure. I mean, you, you try and it doesn't quite work and, and you tweak it and injuries are a big deal and sometimes it comes together and the best laid plans actually work. Are you surprised at your own success in some respects because you know how competitive these leagues are, how difficult it is to win? Well, I first got involved in the NFL in 1993. so. Uh, I've been around this quite a while, so am I surprised? No, I'm not surprised because, I mean, we we work at this and we have great people, and some, but sometimes it, you know it's hard. And it's very hard. Everybody's trying to do it, and they're. I mean, these players are amazing, the best in the world, and uh, programs are best in the world. Nutrition, uh, strength training, conditioning. All these things have improved, so it's it's the elite of the elite. So there's lots of little things that make a difference. And you know, I think you know, the, had the Denver Nuggets up there, and wow, that was a wonderful run. But you know, we thought that team might be good enough two years ago, and Charles Barkley said said it well. He said, you know, if everybody had been healthy, you might have seen this earlier. Might have been, but it, they weren't. And so finally, this year they got healthy, and I was just. At this, at some point, you just want to see people healthy, right? And uh, they were healthy, and they did it. So, 
The well-known sports business voice, Andrew Brandt, said the lesson from your ownership is, quote, put up the money, hire good people, let them do their job, and stay out of the way. Is, is that how you would describe your own ownership style? Kind of, but it's not totally correct. We always like to know what's going on. So, you know, we like to, you know, some of it's just being a fan, I think. You're, you're, you know, we're fans. I mean, we... I don't think we've ever lost that. I mean, our, probably our favorite thing. And Josh, my son, is a huge um, influence in all this too. But he's a fan like I am, and we love these love these players and love working with them. And and so I think I think that's true. I mean, to some degree. But if you really look at our teams, I mean, you know. First time, first time coach in, in uh, hockey wins a Stanley Cup. But before he won the Stanley Cup, he, he had the worst season. His first year with us was just, you know, he, he didn't win anything. And we were, we were the lowest point total in the league. But we stayed with him because we thought he had, had talent. And we thought there were some extenuating circumstances. And if you take Mike Malone, Michael Malone, who, who uh, was our coach at the Nuggets, he, he was... Some people would say he's a failed coach. He got fired. Well, yeah, but he was he was a good. We liked what he did, and so he wasn't a first-time coach, but almost a first-time coach. And he, he had his rough rough spots, and uh, but we stayed with him and kept building that core. And I think you know, again, we build through the draft. We like to know what's going on in the draft. We don't consider ourselves, even though maybe basketball, what Josh played at a high level. I, you know, I love playing the game, and but we don't consider our, ourselves experts on talent. We do have an opinion, but like all our teams, I mean, we're going to listen to the experts, and you know, we'll stay in touch. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna try to know what's going on. There's a difference though between know what's going on mm -hmm. and being a meddler. No, you said right. you're not a meddler. Is it hard? Not I don't to, think anybody would call. Is it, it hard not to do that? No, I don't find it hard. When, you know, you, I know certain things I can do well. Picking players, I would never, you know, I have an opinion, you know, a lot of times. But if you get, you know, this level, that's what I started with. This level is so elite that, you know, if you take the NFL, I mean, I'll have, <laughs> it's, it's fun kind of as an owner, but I, I know others, others in here have this, people come up to you and go, have you seen this player? I mean, have you seen him in college? This guy is unbelievable, you know. And he'll be, be really good. And you kind of go to your draft guys and you go, what about him? And he didn't make the board. He didn't just not make our board. He didn't make any NFL board. <laughs> so, you know, that's part of it. And uh, the guys that do it every day, you know, it's, it's different. You got to give them, you got to have confidence in them. And I think that's a big deal. I mean, I think culturally, I mean, People have to know they're safe, you know. They have to know they can make decisions. They can, that you, you'll have their back at the end of the day. So that's what we try to do. You are a bit of a risk taker, though. Would you consider <laughs> yourself that? Most people in the NFL would say I am, you yeah. know. Because, because you hired we, yeah. your coach of the Rams mm -hmm. in 2017 when he was only 30. Right. That's a risk. That's one, one thing they would, that's one thing they would cite as a risk. Yeah. Why did you know he was the guy? How? That was actually more logical. I always tell I'm, guys like Bob Kraft, I, you know, the ghost. Did you pull the trigger on that? <laughs> you know, it's a 30-year-old coach. 
But it was really much more logical because I thought Kevin Demoff did a great job. I thought Kevin, Les Snead, our general manager, they had the they had a group of candidates that were outstanding and and that was only proven up in the next few years because every one of them was hitting the list and some of them were getting head coach jobs but they had these guys and Sean just kinda he had that thing where he you kinda go there's something special about this guy but the logical part of it was more like this so we had Jeff Fisher as our coach for five years he had a, and Jeff loved defense, and he's known as a defensive coach. So he was drafting defense. And so we had a lot of good players on defense. And then Wade Phillips came out of the Broncos, and he was, going, he was, he was free. And we knew that with Wade, you know, he had a daughter in Southern California, and we knew that he was predisposed maybe to, to come with us. And so he had, if you looked at his analytics, Wade Phillips had never coached a defense that he had not improved. And our defense was already good. So we knew we were going to have a great defense. So now you had this other little outlier, which is called Jared Goff pick number one. He was quarterback, rookie. And Peyton Manning, who's a friend, kept hoping we'd play him more because Peyton still holds a record for most interceptions by a rookie quarterback. <laughs> Jared was challenging it. So... We had to get that straightened out, and Sean had been outstanding. Um, Kirk Cousins to develop him, developing him in uh, Washington, and so Sean, with the with everything, after you went through the process, it became much more logical because he, Sean could, and Wade was happy to work with Sean, and so you felt like you had a good defense. You get Jared straightened out, and Sean was the best guy to do that. I'm glad so, you mentioned yeah. uh, Sean and, and his relationship in Washington, which just obviously sold mm -hmm. to a new owner, including David Blitzer, who was on this stage earlier yeah. today. Um, Six billion dollars. The team in Denver sold 11 months ago for 4.6. Let me ask you first, having new ownership in Washington, the importance of that to you and the rest of the owners is what? Well, I go to Washington a couple times a year for some, some event, and the first thing out of anybody's mouth is, what are you going to do with Washington in the NFL? So it was, it was an obvious problem. And uh, so, yeah, having new ownership, and especially Josh and David, all these, I mean, these people know what they're doing. Mitch Rails, smart guys, and it'll be, it'll, be, uh, it'll be fantastic, really. They're going to be great owners. If Dan didn't leave, would you guys have removed him? Uh, I wouldn't even speculate on that one. I mean, that would be too difficult to even conjure up an answer to, honestly. I have no idea. Yeah. But, I mean, I think everybody, I think it was, people knew that was the right thing to do. What do you make of just the sheer growth and valuation that we went from 4.6 mm -hmm. to 6 mm -hmm. in 11 months? Right. Well, these markets are all different, so that would be one factor, you know. Denver's a smaller market, Washington, D.C. would be perceived as a bigger market. So there'd be a valuation, maybe difference there. And a lot of it, it would be based on how they view their um, opportunities. And so those opportunities would look significant in Washington. You, possibly with new ownership. I've had people tell me that in Washington. You could get a new stadium. All those kinds of things are huge. Do you think that valuations growing like that are sustainable? 
I mean, David Blitzer spoke up here about the scarcity value of supply and demand. Yeah, that's one. Pretty simple. One factor, yeah. So. But at, at, at some point, though, don't you have to top out somewhere? I would think so. No, but I mean, <laughs> it's not something I think about a lot. I, you know, I think a lot about, you know, what we can do day to day to make ourselves better. But, I mean, these valuations, you know, there are multiples. I mean, scarcity value is a big one. Warren Buffett Immediately, I mean, they asked him a few years ago what he thought about pro sports. He goes, as long as we keep creating people with wealth in our societies and around the world, he said, these things will grow in value because of scarcity. So um, that's one factor. So um, generally, they're valued also as a multiple of revenues. And, and then you kind of look at, at some other things, which are what, what exactly can you do uh, with you know the future kinds of streams, revenue streams. What are the opportunities? And you know we've got lots of lots of different things that are starting to come in, so that that create opportunities. So, I mean, in our in our view, I mean, one thing that we always looked at, and I came from a real estate development background. That's how I kind of got in the place where I thought I could do a pro sports thing, and I I'd, I'd always wanted to do pro sports from the time I was in grad school, really, and. Because the thrill in Manila went up on HBO and the scare, I mean, you, you watch that in a pay-per-view, I mean, you could connect the dots. You also, you had the following, the Atlanta Hawks had moved from St. Louis and they'd gone for, I think it was a million and a half or two million dollars total value. So, you I mean, a young guy like me could actually dream I could own one of those things. So, and I thought I saw a future with that pay-per-view. It does raise the issue when you throw out these kinds of numbers who actually is going to be able to afford these things in the future? All right. You know, that came up during the Washington bid. When you start getting to $6 billion, the requirements that the league has and how much liquidity right. you have to have as, right. the, as the lead owner. Right. Um, and then that raises the issue of whether we're going to get to a point of more direct foreign investment and whether you guys as a NFL mm. ownership group and the commissioner mm. will accept that. Mm. How would you address that? Well, I mean, I think as NFL guys, I mean, we're a little bit lucky because we've got other leagues out there. And Adam is, you know, very creative and a creative thinker. And he's, the NBA's probably ahead of, you know, we get to watch them a little bit. And of course, I'm involved in the NBA, so I'm in there too. But um, I've said for 20 years, and I had my own probably I was looked at as having my own um, reasons for having that opinion, but I've told them for over 20 years that they were going to have to relax some of the rules. Like when you talk about the NFL, it's a it's a league of rules. We have lots and lots of rules. You do have and, a lot of rules, and a lot of people agree with me, but they wouldn't do anything about the rules. You know, one of them was cross ownership, which which caused all kinds of different things for me. But you know, I was probably perceived as having you know a reason, but. I told him, I said, the value, the way these values are increasing. When I got involved in 1993, the expansion franchises for the NFL were 130 million. Hmm. A 30% requirement for ownership was 30, so thus 39 million. So you could, you could, that's when I got involved. And, uh, and I think by the end of late, maybe the late 90s, Lamar Huck, yeah, it was, was right around 2000. 
Lamar Hunt was calling me different times, and you know I had a great relationship with him. He's another reason I got involved in pro sports. But From the Chiefs? Yeah, and uh, Lamar was great. He also owned 10% of the Bulls, which was a violation of cross-ownership, but nobody, nobody did anything. Are you suggesting, though, that, uh, <laughs> that the NFL, for, for one, needs to evolve in terms of who yeah. they're going to allow yeah, to invest in teams? Absolutely. Whether We will be looking at it. There's a lot of smart people looking at that. And so, I mean, I think definitely you have to evolve and it'll be interesting, the structures that, that will come into being, I think. I'm wondering how you view in that light, the Saudis, for example. Mm. I mean, you can put your arsenal hat on for a minute when, yeah. you, when you see the Saudis offering Mbappe, mm. you know, widely considered obviously one of the best footballers in the world, mm. $300 million transfer fee. Right. You look at that, and do you say, how can I compete with that? Right. Do you say that? I've always had that. I mean, honestly, when I got involved in Arsenal, it was sort of like, how do you compete with that a little bit? Because I had one investment banker in London tell me one time, you know, he goes, you know a wall of money is coming from the Middle East. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, he was right. I mean, but, you know, how do you compete with that? You know, I mean, I think uh, English Premier League, we start, we've, we've started to add rules. Maybe we didn't have enough rules, but uh, for sure, we didn't have enough rules as regards how do you run an equitable league? I'll put it that way. And not enough, um, you know, penalties or that you could actually enforce. And that, that's another whole topic because you have so many different jurisdictions in Europe and you have to deal with all these different things legally. And so it's, it's a different deal over there. But, but I've had Middle Eastern people of prominence ask me that we're involved in teams. And I like them, by the way. They're great guys. Manchester City, I mean, they're great people. But they just do things differently because they have a whole lot of money. And, and uh, that they've asked me, they go, do you think we could ever run our leagues over here like you do in the U.S.? So they think about it. And uh, so that's an outlier. I understand Mbappe is not really wanting to do, do that. So but does I, it, does I doubt it, that he will. Does it concern you? that the Saudis are obviously interested in making a global sports play, whether it's through golf, people talk about tennis, maybe some, some other sports as well. How concerned are you no. about that topic? Or maybe I should be concerned. I'm not terribly concerned about it. I mean, I mean I've, I've been around these leagues so long. It, it's not as easy as you think. I mean, it's, that's a hard, hard thing. That's hard. And so... You know, I think they can actually help. I mean, there's a lot of ways they could help. I'm sure in your business, Scott, I mean, I'm sure the guys at NBC would say, how do you, and Sky would say, how do we stop the pirating in the Middle East? I mean, of signals that we ought to be paid for, right? Uh, there's a ton of that that's gone on. And so I think if they had an interest, they would get very interested in that and probably help us out. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. 
to move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. We've had many conversations on the stage today about how diverse the sports ownership landscape has become. There are more leagues, large, small, you know, the major leagues, the second tier, perhaps the, the third tier. I want to talk to you about the fan experience. Um, Al Michaels is here, by the way. He, he loves SoFi Stadium. <laughs> he was talking Alex, to me about that fan experience earlier. Um, five and a half billion dollars. Right. Is that the number you've had in that's mind? That's why I said that's why I said there would be some NFL owners that said I was somewhat of a risk taker because Al knows, and we talked about the general nature of the NFL. I mean, somebody had to stick their neck out, and oh, you stuck it out. Fortunately or unfortunately, it had to be me, I guess. But what did you think it was going to cost you? At, at, well, I mean, know? we had we had a, we had we had the architects costing the big architectural firm their costing uh, division. They had a, they were they were costing things as we went through the plans. You know, it wouldn't be prudent if you just developed a plan and said, "Hey, what the heck? What does it cost?" So we were doing this the whole time in a couple of years of work, and then we, not really having full confidence always in architects, shall we say, their practical skills dealing with cost, um, we had two independent costing firms watching what they were doing and coming up with their own estimates. And generally, it was about half of what it cost. That was the estimate? Yeah. Half of what it ended about up? Cost. Yeah, somewhere in there. Hmm. How do you get return on investment from something that ends up costing? Does that really exist? <laughs> yeah. We like to no. think it does. No, no, we like to think it does, too. So, I mean, we're... But, I mean, we do, and, and we've always done this, and it has to do with our background, I guess. I always looked at sports as... Sports plus real estate. And so if you look at SoFi is a great example in that it's Hollywood Park. It's almost 300 acres. It's a fully, full development. We opened a theater there this weekend. The first theater opened in Inglewood in 30 years. And so I, I will tell you, it's the best facility I've seen. And I, I know it's got to be the best facility in Southern California. I mean, it's fantastic. And that's just part of what we're doing is a lifestyle kind of approach to lots of shops and things. And that was, that was a big opening and did very well. And then we have a residential component, which is opening apartments and things. And we just kind of keep doing that. And we've done office buildings and, and we'll do more. The Olympics is coming and they have a strong interest in what we're doing and doing things with us. So it'll, it'll continue to go. And then, Steve uh, Balmer went across the street with the Clippers Arena, which is right there next to uh, our retail and all that. So it's been a, I mean, it honestly, a story that's not told often enough is the benefit that's sort of rippled out across. And you can have various opinions of gentrification or whatever, but these are good problems to have for a city. And the mayor's be the first guy to tell you. Because when he took over as mayor of Inglewood, I think he had 18% unemployment. 
he had lots of problems, he had a big deficit in the budget, they were going to go broke in such and such a time, but now he's doing very well and unemployment is really doesn't exist if people want to work and um, we hired 12,000 people for construction and still have a lot of people working out there. But the peak was 12,000 and 4,000 of which were local. So it's a, it's a great story. And then with Steve's uh, arena next door, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's going. I feel like one of the biggest stories of the off season um, revolved around salaries. Lamar Jackson obviously wanted a Deshaun Watson-like deal with a confirmed uh, guaranteed contract. Um, he didn't get it, obviously. And it, it raises the issue of whether we're ever going to get guaranteed contracts in the NFL and what your view of that would be. I ask you the question on a day where Saquon Barkley signs a one-year deal guaranteed at $10 million the same day that Boston's Jalen Brown. And, you, know, you have a vested interest in both of these stories from NBA and NFL. He agrees to a five-year, $304 million contract today, fully guaranteed. Saquon, one year, $10 million. Jalen Brown, five years, $304 million. Both are guaranteed. Do we need to change the salary structure in the NFL? Well, that's a big topic. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, it is. I can dodge a few of his questions, right? Um, I've got some follow-ups. <laughs> no, it's that was it's a great happen. question, but you know, I think the NBA guys would say that's something we've always done. That was part of our labor contract. Guys' careers last a certain amount of time. There's a certain probability of injury versus, you know, in NFL, average career is X, you know, and... Uh, there's a certain probability injury there. And so all these things have developed sort of that way, I'd say. So that's, I mean, it's a big, it's a big, big question. And, you know, you look at that. I mean, we paid Todd Gurley after we went, you know, we went to the Super Bowl. And uh, probably some New England guys in here. So, But if Todd hadn't got hurt, I mean, that's a different game. But, you know, I talked about injuries, right? <laughs> But Todd was unbelievable before he got hurt that year. So anyway, Todd got paid, and and uh, but you know again, it's the probability injury. Todd was in college; he got hurt, and uh, nobody was paying him in college, right? And they they're paying him now. So I mean, it's a very complex question that you ask, and it's not. There's no simple answer to it. And why do running backs don't get paid, and why do quarterbacks get paid? You know, and you know. That, that's a whole nother question within your question, right? You can answer that one, too, if you want to. No. I, I mean, I'll I mean, I, I just tell you, because they're not valued as highly. I mean, guys that are running these offenses don't value them as highly. So they think they can get somebody out of the draft that maybe can do the job just as well. So they won't go ahead and pay. Would, would the Rams love to have Saquon Barkley? Absolutely. Would we, would we love to have him for $10 million? Probably if we, can get, if we can handle it under the cap, right? So there's, there's a lot of complexity still. Sure. I mean, to some people, it, it's, it's as simple as the, the league is the strongest it's, it's ever been. Um, your teams all make a, a good amount of money. The, the TV rights deals continue to go up. And it's as simple as that, that the players should, should get theirs. And the, the players in the NFL are the ones who 
put their bodies on the line in a way that they don't in other sports. And that in and of itself should justify the evolution of the salary structure in something like the NFL. And I think the salary structure does evolve. I mean, I, do, I think it absolutely does evolve. Having said that, the players do get their share. You know, I would, I would tell you from our side. And, you know, we build stadiums so that, that they I mean, think about the revenue that a place like SoFi produces relative to something else. You mentioned the huge amount of, of investment it took there. That produces a lot of revenue, which the players share in, and that allows them to make more. Now, how you allocate it between running backs and, you know, quarterbacks and stud line, linemen and linebackers, you know, I mean, I mean, think about Aaron. I mean, Aaron Donald, I mean, what a great player, huh? He should get paid, right? And so how do you allocate all that? And sort of kind of comes down to market forces, I think, how people evaluate it. We, we started this conversation with how you've created this, as I called it, an empire of winning. But what keeps you up at night regarding the teams that you own? Oh, I sleep pretty good. Uh, <laughs> Especially when you win four championships in, in 16 the last 16 months, months, I guess yeah. you do. <laughs> I guess you do. No. no, I don't know. I mean, what keeps you up? I mean, businesses are all fluid. I mean, there, there's lots of moving parts. And, uh, but, I, you know, I have a lot of confidence in my partners and our commissioners. And so, I mean, I... I really feel very comfortable in, in that environment. Of course, I've been there a long time. But. KD in Phoenix, does he keep you up at night? He could. I mean, he's a heck of a player and has been for a long time. Great player. And we get to go again this year. We, we, were, t we were talking about it back, backstage. When you win one, do you feel the pressure to repeat? No. You don't? Mm -mm. I really don't. I, I mean, some people would say you should, but... I don't. I mean, it's about, I think Kevin would tell you, maybe he, you love to win. I mean, you love it. I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, there's nothing like it. And, uh, but do I feel pressure to do it again? No, but I do I feel a, a desire strongly to do it again? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful, but I don't feel, I don't feel a lot of pressure from it. Is, is there a, a franchise in a sport that you'd like to own that you don't have a piece of now? I mean, where, where do you see your portfolio, if you will, in sports investing go from here? When you've had the degree of success that you've had in a, in a no, I know you've been at a, at a long time, but now you've reached the pinnacle in so many of these different sports. Do you have aspirations beyond the teams that you own? I mean, there, you have to look at opportunities. And so if the right opportunities came along, I think that's sort of how we grew into what we are today. We saw certain opportunities and, and we pursued them. And when we started out, it wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna have the biggest number of sports teams. I mean, it, doesn't, it didn't work that way. It was- A blitzer has that. Uh, blitzer has that now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, you'd have to look at the opportunities and see what they were. But, you know, I don't think we approach it that way. I think we, if the opportunities are there and they're really good ones and we like what we see, yeah, we would, do, we would look at it. I, I said the other day that <clears throat> um, 
we were approached very strongly, I guess because we were in English Premier League back when the, uh, the Indian Cricket League started, Cricket League in India, and they really wanted us to get involved. And I thought about it a lot. It wasn't a lot of money, and now they're worth quite a lot of money. But we decided not to do that. It was just, you know, a matter of, you know, geographical disbursement and, you know, the time and effort and travel. And you just kind of looked at the whole thing and said, I don't think we'll do that. But so we just have to see. I mean, things can happen. I mean, I think, it's inter I think what really is interesting, you want to talk about values and how they might increase, is we all have this streaming platform that we talk about forever. You guys talk about it a lot. Sure. And you should. I mean, but again, as Warren Buffett said, it's not a good business right now. I mean, it doesn't make any money. Everybody, everybody went from a legacy business that made a lot of money, you know, cable, that kind of thing. And it's still there, don't get me wrong. But now you have streaming, which nobody's doing any, any very good at it. I mean, they're. Maybe they're increasing subscribers or whatever, but they're not making any money. They're losing a lot of money. And so how does it become a good business? Well, it could become a good business if it was consolidated. That's one way. And so if you had fewer players and you had more pricing power, you guys did a thing the other day, one of your guys that talked about the average streaming bundle. It used to cost $70, now it costs 219 or 210 or something like that. And and this was just in two or three, four years, something like that. So obviously the price is going up, but I think what they're talking about with the bundle is how many things you think you have to buy to get, your, to get the coverage that maybe you enjoyed with a few things historically. So I don't know what will happen there, but if that gets rationalized, in my view, I mean, how did Michael Jordan make all kinds of money? Early on, it wasn't playing basketball. I mean, he got paid well. But Michael will be the first guy to tell you. And I was on the committee that proved Michael is an owner in the NBA. And so, and then now you've had Air, the movie, so everybody talks about those numbers. But how did Michael do that? Well, he extended his brand. I mean, that just all, all that was is simply Michael became recognized around the world and people goes, whoa, I'm going to get on this, you know, train with my products. And so he got paid big dollars for it. I, so I think that these leagues in, in the U.S. in particular, and I mean, English Premier League may be the best at it because when I look at Arsenal, the ability to expand your brand around the world. I mean, Arsenal has these huge blogs and places in the world that are amazing. And, uh, and I look just at the U.S. since uh, NBC and now Peacock, you know, televising English Premier League. But... I don't have the trend that when it started or what, but I know what it is now and it's pretty healthy. So one of our ideas too, when we went to the UK was to help Major League Soccer here in the US, which we have a team, by joining with a brand on the continent. And so that was sort of in reverse of what Man City has done. You know, they had Man City and then they bought a team over here. So we were doing that, and so we, we bought a piece of what we thought was the best property, which was Arsenal. But Arsenal now has core fans in the UK of something like 1.4 to 1.5 million people. And that is the avid fan, you know, they're very involved, so on and so forth. In the US, they have three and a half to four million. I mean, it's 
way more over here in the U.S. And secondary fans, they have something like that number is somewhere in the three to four in the U.K. And over here, they have eight to ten. So that that didn't that wasn't the case when we first got involved in Arsenal. So you can see that that trend and that that bodes well for for Arsenal and English Premier League. So can the and I, can the team, uh, leagues here in the U.S. expand internationally and extend that brand? You know, and the NBA probably has done the, done the best job so far. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I told Roger Goodell, our commissioner in the NFL, I feel much better about the NFL's ability to do some of that now than I did when, when I first got involved. I just I felt like put, American football was such a core thing here in the U.S., but people around the world, they just didn't. They didn't watch it. They didn't understand it. But I think that's changing some. Our, our European games, our games in London, our games in Germany last year, they're very popular and sold out very quickly. So we'll see. But, you know, in hockey, it's hockey, uh, you know, primarily, you know, inter a lot of international players, mm -hmm. great, great players. But I've always loved that part of the business anyway, the international thing, because when I was in grad school, I, that was my favorite course study. Unfortunately, I only had one course. So, but I love that. I think it's good for the world, and I think it's. I think, I know there's lots of challenges and lots of views on that, but anything that can bring us together is good. That was the owner of multiple sports franchises, Stan Kroenke. He joined us at the Game Plan Sports Business Summit, hosted by CNBC and Boardroom, on July 25th, 2023. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share with your friends. You can visit CNBCEvents.com to learn about upcoming events and how you can join us. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.